I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wiradjuri Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. You know, I don't have a goal of having to be, you know, rock star winemaker title or accolade, um, mainly because I just see it as part of a team. So, like, if everyone in the team's doing their job properly, we will make great wines. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Emma Norbiato is chief winemaker of Calabria Family Wines, working with family-owned vineyards and a large collection of growers throughout New South Wales and South Australia. It's an impressive operation, with labels such as St. Petrie, Three Bridges and Pierre d'Amour, to name a few. And Emma is one of the powerhouses of knowledge and talent behind it. Hi Em, thanks for joining me. Hi Shante, how are you? I'm so well. It looks like we've got you in the middle of doing lots of different jobs today. How is your day tracking? Yeah, uh, every day is um, a collection of problem solving, tasting wine, you know, responding to emails, trying to have something to eat in the middle of all that. Um, but it's good. It's dynamic. It's fun. It's fast. So, yeah, it's good and creative as well. So, it's a good day. I like that. I think that there's always that balance of highs and lows, isn't there? There's, yeah, like you said, there's the problem solving, but then there's like, oh, I just tasted something super delicious. And it's all about the kind of contrast and balance of all of that. Absolutely. So I just walked into this podcast and prior to that I was tasting the, we were discussing on the bench, the um, 21 St. Patrick GSM blend and there was four of us debating over which blend we should choose, which is the fun part of the job. But then there's, you know, other parts as well that are less glamorous, I would say. <laughs> There's always the less glamorous. That's pretty exciting looking at a GSM blend. So you're kind of looking at what proportions you want to add in of Grenache, Shiraz, or whether it be Mavedra first. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, so that's what we're just doing then. Yeah. That's really exciting. Where did you sit in the camp of it all? Um, so we, I, we're going to go with the more red fruited, vibrant style of wine. Um, so some others were headed towards more structural and tannic, but we've, I think we've ended up on the red fruited option. So yeah, a bit more ethereal, I hope. Yeah, I'm sure but you do such a good job. So uh, whatever I think your instincts are, it's probably correct. Take me way back to when you got the wine bug. How did that all start for you? Okay, so um, I was born and raised in the Riverina region. And in the late uh, 90s, which is when I started to study, the industry was booming in um, this region or in Australia. So everyone was converting from broadacre to grapes. And I grew up on a broadacre farm. My family didn't convert to grapes, but everyone around us was. Um, and at that point in time, I just knew that I liked science, I liked art, but I, I couldn't see myself being 100% in agriculture, being on a farm. You know, I couldn't be in an office all day. So the um, sort of balance, the mix between art, science and agriculture appealed to me and the diversity of the job. So I literally just went uni preferences. Oh, don't worry about a dietitian. I'll see what winemaking's like. My parents were like, what? Anyway, so I did it. Um, and when I went to uni and we started doing sensory analysis and tasting wine and I was like, oh, wow, it was really amazing. I loved it. So um, that was how it started. 
I always think when I talk about people going to somewhere like Charles Sturt University or Roseworthy or whatever it may be, you know, that you must be so serious because winemaking is, is technical. Or, But take me through a day in the life of a scholar at Charles Sturt back in those times. Um, oh, this is 20 years ago, so well, probably more actually. But there was um, probably about uh, – it wasn't that many in my year, maybe – 40 or so, um, you, you know, sometimes we'd have a chemistry in the morning and botany or soil science in the afternoon. We'd have sensory analysis. Um, so the, the course is really diverse. It'd be statistics, wine re-engineering, um, microbiology. So it was probably a heavy science base to start with but then became more um, – you know, winemaking as you as you went on. And obviously in with that, when you're at uni with a whole heap of other people that want to talk about wine, there's a lot of tasting and, you know, out of class tastings and stuff like that that is quite fun to be a part of. So it was a good group. Um, yeah, but certainly uh, science base was probably the core of it. So you're telling me that there's still that element of people going to the uni bars and drinking together in dorms and all of that because I can't foresee it, but surely, surely there must be. That's that's university life, right? 100%. Like I didn't know if I should say that, but 100%, that is uni life, yes. <laughs> um, yes, so up to our ears and all that kind of stuff as well. That's perfect because it, I think that that's kind of the rite of passage that you need to have at that time of your life anyway. And if it wasn't happening, you know, in a wine course, then I'd be really concerned, I think. That's right. Yeah. And if you didn't do it there, you'd do it, be doing it somewhere else. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Probably a more important time in your life. So, after your degree, what was the next step? I know that you did some study, and, um, but what, was, what did you decide to do straight out of uni? What, what's the next step? Okay, um, straight out of uni, I actually started working for what was South Corp at the time. And um, I was made an assistant winemaker at South Corp in Griffith. They were operating in Griffith at that time. They don't anymore. I did one vintage with them. And then after that, um, they moved me to Caradoc in Mildura. So I then worked with them there with South Corp. Um, after that, I travelled overseas for a little while and I worked in um, Tuscany at a place called, um, yeah, for Frescobaldi in Montalcino. And then after that I came back to Australia and I didn't really, I'd left Treasury and I didn't really have another job to go to. And so I actually called my old boss and I said, oh, I'm coming back to Australia, I don't have anywhere to go, do you have a job? And he said, let me work it out. And he came back and said, I have a job for you, but I can't tell you where it is. And because I had no nothing else to come back to, I said, okay, I'll take it. And that turned out to be the job in um, Barossa with Penfolds. So I worked with Penfolds for four years as a, in the red winemaking team. And then after that, I worked um, Casella in Griffith, was in part of their growth phase. And I wanted to work with them. It was a really... Um, from the outside looking, it was very dynamic, a lot of growth and just a really challenging role. So I became senior winemaker with them when I was about 27. And then um, after I'd worked with 
Casella. I had children and um, then started working for Calabria. Wow. So when you got back from Tuscany and you accepted a job, you didn't know where it was at and you found out it's at Penfolds, did you feel like you'd hit the jackpot or did you think, shit, this is a big deal? (laughs) It was an oh shit moment um, for sure, an oh shit moment and like brilliant. So... um, like I just – the team there was fantastic. I loved working with them. Um, and I remember in like my first week working there, Steve Leonard, my boss at the time, said to one of the other winemakers, we've just got the next vintage of Grange here. Do you want to come and taste it? And um, I was like, holy shit, yes. And the other winemaker was like, oh, no, i got a bit on this afternoon. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like that was <laughs> – Whoever says no to this kind of stuff, um, but it was it was brilliant, and I was really very lucky to um, get the job and to work with the people that I worked with when I was there. Yeah, it was a brilliant position. Sounds so exciting, and then and then to work in Griffith, which which is where you're born, isn't that? Yeah, I'm from yes, yes, yeah. That's pretty amazing too to go kind of back home and look at it in a completely different light. Do did you have that moment of? Oh, you know, when you move away from home, and then you come back and you're like, mm, it's slightly smaller. Or did what did you think when you moved back to make wine? Then? Yeah. Um, so I, it was going from two extremes. So um, Penfolds was like kind of business where there was no expense spared, and it was the best fruit and the best barrels, and and everything. Um, you know, it was a luxury winemaking position. Um, and because not many people move out of a job like that and go to a commercial winery, um, but, you know, my husband and I wanted to be in Griffith again. So when you go from a role like that to a role like Casella, which is a completely different scale, uh, it was really eye-opening and challenging. And I think the skill set that you gain from working at a place like Casella where you know, you crush 180,000 tonne, the bottling line's running um, 24 hours a day, you're making 30 million litre blends. Those skills can't be taught at too many places in Australia. Likewise, what you learn at Penfolds is quite a unique skill set as well. So I feel very fortunate that I just sort of, you know, stumbled across those two jobs um, sequentially that are so contrasting but both have a very important place in the industry. Yes, so much so because, you know, it's, it's the bread and butter and then it's the, the cream of the crop. It's a bit of everything in between and we, like you said, we need it all. That's that's the whole industry. So amazing that you've, with you know, like you said, three different winemaking roles, you've kind of touched on all of them. Tell me a little bit about Calabria Family Wines and your current role there now. Yeah, so I'm currently um, chief winemaker for Calabria. So we are based in Griffith. Um, We So in May 2021, Calabria purchased the McWilliams Winery in Griffith and the brands and the IP that go with it. So we now have um, the McWilliams Handwood Fortifieds um, and plus the table wines that go with it. So when I started with Calabria, we were, um, you know, table wines, um, focusing on Barossa and Riverina. And with McWilliams, it's become a really diverse portfolio. So it's become a business in the last 12 months that's just 
had some massive growth, um, but also brilliant opportunities. So right now I'm working with a team where we look after fortifieds and we've got fortifieds that are 30 years old in barrel that are amazing to see. And we've got some, you know, it's really an exciting time for the business with all the um, new products and um, the facilities that we have to make wine uh, are amazing. So it's a really dynamic growth period where I think um, hopefully you see a lot of good things come out of it. Well, there's certainly a lot happening. I remember when I first um, met you and I had a couple of people say to me, (laughs) Emma, she works for Calabria, like she's a big deal. Hey, she makes a lot of wine. You wouldn't believe what she does. And then if someone else told her, I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. She makes a lot of wine. She's got a lot going on. She sounds like a weapon. Like I'm so excited to meet her. <laughs> it's just, um, you know what? It's just that this, when you're in a position for a big winery like I am, you've got a lot of people with you. So there's a team of six winemakers um, it's it's managing the team and the people and the vineyards. So I think the second that everyone goes, oh, yeah, look, you know, someone in my position might say, oh, look at all this fantastic stuff that I do, that's the second you've lost it because you need the team, you need the people around you. So well, I'm very fortunate that I've got um, a team of really passionate winemakers that are also diverse, that um, – support each other and also support me. So that's what makes that's what makes it work well, I think. Is that we have to remember that we're not doing this on our own. I especially imagine with um it being family, you know, an operated business that you have, you know, a lot of meaning to the people that are that are working within it. I think they're in the are they fourth genera third generation now? Third generation, yeah. Yes, um it's good. Uh So what I enjoy about working for Calabria, so prior to this I worked, as I I said, um, Treasury, is that I can go to my boss, which is Michael Calabria, and I can say, I think we should do this. And he'll say yes or no, case closed, and it happens or it doesn't. I don't have to write, um, you know, 15-page capexes or essays or, you know, to get things done. so the bureaucracy is removed, mm. which is excellent. And I think that's um, the strength of this business and a lot of the businesses in this region. So in the Riverina, the, um, there's no corporates in here anymore in, at this region. All the large wineries are family-owned. There's Debortley, Casella, Burton, Calabria. We're all family-owned, which means that the um, – business plan is long-term. So things don't have to make sense for a quarterly announcement. They have to make sense for 10 or 5 or 15 years' time. Mm. So um, I like that we're here for the long term. I like that thought that, righto, this might not make sense right now, but we know that we're we're planting seeds for the long term. Whereas in a corporate, I felt very different about that. It was always like, oh, this announcement's coming out, um, the business dynamics were different. Yeah, that I think that that balance of the two is something that must be pretty hard to achieve, but pretty amazing to be part of and to see it see it working. And it is nice to know that there are so many wines in, in Riverina, so many brands in Riverina that are family owned that 
um, have that legacy behind them. Did you find that your time in Tuscany and kind of working with, you know, operations that were often multi-generational, has that impacted or had any effect on how you feel about working for Calabria now? Um, Working in Tuscany was like, it was really different. I was in the cellar um, uh, and I worked for like a family winery, but I didn't have a lot to do with the family, with the Frescobaldis. So I worked for um, a a female winemaker there. Um, Well, I think it didn't probably impact the way I feel about Calabria, but working overseas teaches you not the specifics of winemaking, but the... um, about the country, like about the um, – you understand DOC and DOCG and you remember what the Sangiovese looks like. And um, so there's all those kind of little nuances that you remember from working overseas. Um, mm. Yeah, it was a brilliant time, like beautiful place of the world to be and work. It was very lucky. Yeah, very idyllic, that's for sure. Is there a wine that you fell in love with or a grape that you fell in love with that you're able to now make for yourself here? Yeah, so um, Chardonnay, which is like so cliche. Everyone loves Chardonnay. So, like, I feel very boring saying that. But um, Chardonnay responds really well to winemaking artifacts. So, you can just play so much with it. And I think um, there's many faces and styles of Chardonnay. And I remember when I was um, in, when I worked for Treasury. We had a Chassan Montrachet at one of the dinners. I don't remember what vintage it was, but I was like, it was the first time I'd tasted a Chardonnay that was really wrapped with artefact. Mm. And I was like, that's amazing. So um, now with McWilliams and Calabria, we have um, some beautiful fruit from Tumbarumba. We're working with a grower there. Um, McWilliams have made... You know, I, I think McWilliams previously have made some beautiful Chardonnays. Um, and so now working um, at the McWilliams site and looking at the choice of oaks and the methods that they were using here, I'm finding that really exciting to see these Chardonnays evolve. So in 2022, I think um, we've got some really good Chardonnays coming out. I'm really happy with the vintage and the way it's gone. Um and the what it does for you as a winemaker is it makes you think about how to achieve different things through winemaking artifact. So I enjoy that part of it. Yeah, but I mean, I think that that that's sometimes we talk about sight a lot and we talk about all the natural aspects, but we don't often talk about the craftsmanship and the artisanship of what goes into actually making wine and what's exciting to you know. Pr- produce these different outcomes and you know that's why people say chardonnay so often like you said because there's so many realms and styles and ways of drinking it you know it's one variety that you could kind of just drink for the rest of your life and always be satisfied so I think that that makes a lot of sense oh it's it's such a fun variety to make Tell me about the Riverina wine region. What would you like people to know a little bit more about that region? Because, you know, we we talk about quite smaller regions and Riverina is a huge part of um, Australian, the landscape, and it's really, really important in terms of production. So tell me a little bit about Riverina. Yeah, sure. Um, so we are 
what the Riverina is important for production because of our volume, and um, in many ways, you could argue that to convert someone from a different um, alcoholic beverage over to wine, they would at first be drinking a wine from the Riverina region. So I think if we get that wrong, then we lose that customer because they don't. They would decide, oh, we don't like wine. Mm. So if we get that right, we keep the customer in this segment. Um, and so it's it's no secret that Riverina has um, it's you know it's the least romantic spectrum of the industry. Um, <laughs> I've used that word again, least romantic, um, but. What we do is really important because um, our region producing wines well, I believe, helps other regions um, lift their game as well. Mm. And the other thing is uh, what Calabria tries hard to do is to challenge the status quo. So um, when vines are manipulated properly in this region, we can make some great wines. Um, So we've got our... Calabria Montepulciano, which comes from company fruit, and we um, we manipulate that. We bunch thin, we shoot thin, um, we do everything we need to do to get it to the quality it needs to be. We do that with our Narrow Diavola, and McWilliams have um, a Tariga in their range that we treat the same. So there's um, certainly a lot of scope to challenge a status quo with this region. But what we're doing currently is is also, I think, um, important to keep people in the segment or to keep new drinkers in the segment more so. Yeah. I love what you said about the fact that you are, you know, you're probably targeting somebody that's starting out in wine, not only because of, you know, the you know, the largest wine producing region in all of, you know, New South Wales and, but more, more so as well, because of what you're able to do at different price points as well. So, you know, I almost opened this podcast saying, you know, you've probably drunk, most of you listeners out there have probably drunk a wine made by Emma, or if not, you've drunk a wine made in, yeah, made in Riverina. Um, And it's also the fact that, you know, if we look at the climate of Australia, you've got a climate that is very distinctive of a large portion of Australia. Whereas we often talk about the smaller percentages or the, the kind of the minorities of where there's, you know, perhaps higher altitude. So I think it's so important because what you're doing out there is what we will be doing in the future for lots of other regions as, as we, you know, get warmer over time. Mm, I think you're right. And um, like the way we, what we have to do to grow grapes here, be it commercial or premium, is different to a cooler climate. We have to. We are starting to choose varieties that are um, later ripening and hold their acid better. We're managing canopies so that they're um, they're protecting the fruit from extreme heat. Um, all irrigation is drips so that it can be managed um, accurately with minimal water. So there's lots of um, People are now talking about mid-row cover crops, which other regions do, but, you know, it'll keep the temperature of the soil down and keep the reflection of the heat off the grapes. So um, there's there's a lot of um, discussion about growing grapes here for the future, mm. yes. 
I love that. Now, you've won some amazing awards. In 2016, um, you won the Australian Women in Wine Awards uh, Winemaker of the Year. And recently, you were nominated for finalist of Gourmet Traveller Winemaker of the Year in 2019. As a winemaker, what is your high, highest achievement? Like, what what is the cherry on the cake that you kind of hope for? <laughs> you know, I don't think about that too often. I just like... I just do my job. I like I like my job. I like doing my job. Um, I really want I really want to be to make good, consistent wines. Um, I want our reds to. I want to be recognised. I want the wines here to be recognised as great wines consistently. Um, I'm not one to go searching for. Um, you know, I don't have a goal of having to be. A wine may have a wine, you know, rock star winemaker title or accolade, um, mainly because I just see it as part of a team. So, like, if everyone in the team's doing their job properly, we will make great wines. So, I don't have a, there's not a carrot dangling at the end saying, once I've achieved this status, oh, I'm done. I just really think if we can consistently make some great wines, um, I'll be really happy. I knew you were going to answer that question that way. <laughs> it's exactly why I asked it, only because I think it really showcases um, your personality, which is incredibly humble, very hardworking, highly ambitious, but in a, a really team-orientated way, which is why I think you've been so incredibly successful, but also why people like you so much. Oh, I don't know. I just – I don't know. <laughs> I just I like doing my job and I like the challenge of my job and as soon as I'm not challenged in my job or um, I feel like I'm not giving 100% then it's time for someone else to do it but at the moment I'm happy doing that so yeah that's that. That's pretty good to hear. Do you have a, a favourite variety at the moment that you're really enjoying drinking or something that's kind of piquing your interest? Um, well, because we've started making, well, not we, I've started to be involved with Fortifieds with McWilliams. Um, it's actually got me thinking about Fortifieds a lot. And not that I've bought um, many to drink, but I'm just thinking, you know, there's got to be a way to bring um, more people over to Fortifieds because they're fantastic. So, and, I, and I'm sort of have this little thing in my head where I'm like I want some I want to do a degustation with fortifieds only and I want to be able to make every fortified in that meal starting with an apera and you know and I think uh, so that's probably got my interest at the minute um we're about to release a um a ruby red fortified which is made from temp and tarega it's slightly lower alcohol than your traditional fortified it's 16 and a half but i'm like that could go with the venison you know i'm sort of trying to um um just put a bit more love and life and modernize fortifieds a little bit i think i think there's a lot of space for that i completely agree with you and i think it's funny because for when you know, Australia changed the name of Sherry into a para after the European Union banned us from doing so. I really kind of thought that there was a bit, little bit of attraction behind it and a bit of a push. And I thought that might be 
the new element because I know people get a bit scared of sugar sometimes. So I thought, you know, the Apera is what's going to push it forward and places like Pennyweight. And we saw a lot of Aperas come out and I thought maybe this is, this is it. But, you know, in the restaurant scene, I've always had more success with Fortifieds when I gave it as a little additional pairing with a dish, but people still had the comfort of something like their Chardonnay or their Riesling that they were drinking as well. So it wasn't that they had to make a sacrifice like, yes, let's go fortified. So I, I completely agree with you. I think a degustation would be great to just showcase how well those kind of drinks go with food. It's super exciting and it would be great to see. I mean, you know, if you decide to do a dinner sometime and you can get a chef on board with that, I'd love to help out. Yeah, I um, well, we've got to have the right wines to go with it, which is what we're working towards. But, um, you know, a Paris with soups and um, ruby ports with um, main meals, like it, it is easy and it would just be so exciting and refreshing to have that kind of challenge your mind about how you should be drinking these wines. Um, yeah, so I'm really enjoying learning about Fortifieds and I work with Russell Cody who's made Fortifieds for a long time uh, and he's brilliant knowledge, uh, amazing person. So it's really um, been great working with him as well. Well, I think that sounds so exciting and sounds like you've got a job to do now with Fortifieds and I've got plenty of time to think about how we'd pair the menu together. So <laughs> I'll try and hold up my end of the bargain. <laughs> uh, Emma, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Okay, because, like, I cannot start a day without coffee. And if I haven't had um, two by the end of the day, I've, had a, I've got a headache. So that's got to be number one because no wine is made in. There's no, there is no wine making without coffee first. Um, three beverages. Uh I would probably have to be boring and say Chardonnay, well-made Aussie Chardonnay. Um, and then I'm going to say um, probably like a Chianti or a um, Tuscan Red just because it feels like I'm on holidays when I drink those wines. So... Hey textural, um, yeah, nice tannins, a little bit savoury. Yeah, so a tusk, any Tuscan red, and if it's in a carafe, that's okay too because I feel like I'm on holidays. Perfect. That sense of being able to transport you to somewhere else where life's a bit easier and you're enjoying yourself is truly one of the best parts of wine. And you're right, having a carafe or, you know, um, fiasco of wine or something like that just yeah you're only in one place and yeah you've not got a lot on your mind except for what you're eating <laughs> and the company well people often say to me um and I used to do the recorking clinics with penfolds or even now with my current role you know when should I drink this and how long should I sell it for and should I hold on to it and I, and I, I always say we make it to drink next time you have an occasion drink it because the best wine is the best wines that I've drunk uh, with great people at a great occasion. Mm. It's it, wine. We make wine to drink. It's for an occasion, and I think sometimes we forget that and we get a bit too precious with the rules around um, 
you know, when and how. And, and I'm like, the occasion is what is what we do it for. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is true. And, and, you know, sometimes you think, oh, I won't open that. That's really special. But like you said, there's that ad on TV that's driving me insane, but that, that talks about like, we're not doing anything special, but you're often with the most important people or <laughs> and you're thinking, well, you know, this is my husband and he's the love of my life. Maybe we should just drink it on our Wednesday night together. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I fully support that because that's the occasion. You'll make the occasion. So yes, that's when the best wines are. Perfect. So stop waiting for the ideal moment and open something delicious. That is the lesson we've learned today. (laughs) Yes, 100%. That's my motto. I love it. Emma, it's always such a delight to be in your company. I really look forward to the next time we chat. And thank you so much for making some time. I know how busy you are, but how much you thoroughly enjoy it. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Shante. Anytime. Cheers to you. Great. Thanks. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.